Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. You could say that my interest in museum lighting is sort of a long obsession. It's something I've been interested in since I first started my career at the National Gallery more years ago than I care to remember. In this episode, I speak with conservation science expert David Saunders. In July 2016, the Getty and the Rothschild Foundation announced the creation of the Getty Rothschild Fellowship, a program that will support innovative scholarship in the history of art, collecting, and conservation, using the collections and resources of both institutions. The fellowship offers art historians, museum professionals, and conservators the opportunity to research and study at the Getty in Los Angeles and at Waddesdon Manor in Buckinghamshire, England. David Saunders, the inaugural Getty Rothschild Fellow, is currently at work on a groundbreaking publication about museum and gallery lighting. He is a former principal specialist at the National Gallery in London and keeper of conservation, documentation, and research at the British Museum. Lighting in museum galleries is a topic of great importance, as it affects both the visitor experience and the long-term condition and safety of the objects on display. Improper light levels can produce radiant heat that over a period of time can cause the surface of an artwork to crack, change color, or otherwise degrade. These concerns must be balanced with creating a comfortable environment for the visitor and displaying objects to their best advantage. While there is subjectivity involved in these complex decisions, David's publication aims to provide a scientific basis to guide these judgments. David is currently finishing his fellowship at Waddesdon Manor, but while he was working on his research here at the Getty, I met with him to talk about the history and future of museum conservation and lighting. So David, before we get into the subject of your book and your research here at the Getty, tell us about the history of conservation in museums. I I think that probably people take it for granted that there's always been some level of professional conservation in museums, but what is the history of it? Well, there have probably been people working on uh, the care of objects in museums for for centuries, um, since museums were were first founded. In private individuals having collections would have people working on their their material. But... uh, as, as an organised profession, it's really much more recent. Around the late 19th century, early 20th century, we start to get uh, many more reports of museums uh, having conservators. And professional training for conservators really doesn't get underway until you know, sort of the, uh, the second quarter of the 20th century. And then even un- at that time, it's generally the case that conservators work with the curatorial departments within a museum. You mean side by side, a conservator and a curator side by side? Well, (laughs) with conservators working in these departments, it was generally the case that the the curators were in charge and the conservators uh, reported to the curators. And so you had specialists perhaps in paintings in the curatorial department and you had specialised paintings conservators working with those curators. And really only in the kind of the latter half of the 20th century, does one see conservation departments being formed in many of the museums? Now, in some museums were really at the vanguard of this. Uh, in the States, the, the fog uh, yeah, in, sure. in, in Harvard. Harvard was really at the forefront of this. Um, but 
for example, at the British Museum, where I worked for many years, it was only really in the 1970s that all the conservators in the different departments of the museum came together to form a single department. And in many museums, the conservators still work within the curatorial departments. The Metropolitan Museum in New York, you find that the curators uh, with specialisms uh, in their decorative arts, for example, will have conservators working with them who are specialised in decorative arts. I suppose in the earliest days of conservation, we call it conservation, uh, before it became a kind of a professionalised practice, uh, there were artists who fixed up paintings, who dealt with the problems that paintings had to offer, or sculptors who had to worry about problems sculptors had. Um, is that the case? It, it is. Um, particularly in the sort of 18th and 19th century, we see these, these artist sculptors who specialised in restoring material um, for private collectors and for museums and for auction houses. And there's often a fine line there between restoring those objects and improving them right, right. Uh, for the market. And, you know, we, we see in museums now uh, collections of sculptures, for example, that were very much improved after excavation. They'd lost fairly substantial parts during burial. They were restored in the 18th century, say. And then there's this tradition in the 20th century of de-restoring them, and then towards the end of the 20th century, re-restoring. Was that a word that was used? Well, I don't know whether it was used then, because, of course, at that stage, it was just the restoration of them, because there was this very purist attitude that we must remove from um, objects all the accretions um, that had been imagined in the the 18th century. And so, fortunately, in many cases, although these parts were removed, they were retained, so they weren't thrown away. So when the fashion changed in the late 20th century, these parts could be reattached and I think the Getty Villa does this very well showing effectively three-dimensional maps on the labels of the parts that are original the parts that were added in the maybe 18th 19th century and then modern restoration that's perhaps aimed at reintegrating these things so one has a clear idea of what is the work of the conservator restore in this I, I know that when some object has been restored multiple times, uh, it's hard to decide to what to reduce the restoration to. In other words, to its original state, let's say it was made in the 16th century, but it was restored in the 17th, the 18th, and the 19th century, or to keep all those attached in some way, identified as attachments, because they have historical value in and of themselves. So it must be hard to come to some agreement between conservatives and curators about what state to leave the object in. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always a, a discussion about to what extent you return to an original artist's intent, sometimes right. you know, the phrase used, um, and to what extent you keep the history of an object as part of the object. So the restorations become part of the history of an object. And in many cases, the artists and restorers working on the uh, the sculptures or paintings were, were great artists in their own right, right and therefore we would value those those additions that they have made and i think in in modern conservation terms we are perhaps not so rigid as we might have been in the past, but we're very keen that everything should be thoroughly documented so that our choices are clear and that we leave the maximum possibility for our successors to 
reinterpret what we have done as fashions change, as technologies allow reinterpretation. Yeah. Uh, before we get farther along into the, your actual research project, I do want to get back for at least a brief moment to the history of conservation. I recall a story about the National Gallery of London, where you worked, okay. uh, in the middle of the 19th century, where the air was quite polluted. And, of course, being in the center of London, there was a big debate about moving the gallery and its collections out of the center of London to the west, where the air was fresh. Uh, and it was even justified, because most of the working classes lived on the east of London, in terms that they would benefit by walking farther to go see the collections because they would have exercise in the process and so forth. And ultimately, Parliament came to a decision that no, it had to stay in the centre of London because, of course, these works of art, these pictures, these paintings, were the property of, as it were, the nation. Therefore, they should be equally accessible to all, more or less. Um, and the museum had to figure out how to prevent that foul air from outside coming into and damaging the pictures. Is that a, is that a true story or, or is it a good story? Um, I, I recognise... Most of that story, um, I hadn't heard about the um, the factor of getting the working classes from the east of London to walk further in order to see the paintings and that that would be good exercise for them. But yes, there was um, a select committee report in the 1850s which looked at reciting the National Gallery um, to the west of London to a site which now isn't far from where the Albert Hall and the Victoria and Albert Museum were built later in the 19th century, but which was considerably cleaner. I mean, we now think of that area of Kensington um, as being part of the metropolis, but then it was to the west. The prevailing winds blew from the west, so the foul air that was created in the area around the Thames near the gallery blew east, so there was no question of moving it east. Um, And indeed, they decided, for the very reasons you've said, that it was best to have the collection where it was most accessible in the very centre of London, and they didn't move it. And in order to try and uh, ameliorate the problems of the foul atmosphere, they looked at potentially having better doors and windows, but also protecting the paintings uh, at the level of the paintings. And they had two strategies for this. The first was to glaze paintings. And we know that by about the 1880s... Which means to put a a sheet of glass on. Yes, it would have been in those days glass. We didn't have any of these fancy plastics that you sometimes now see in front of paintings. And we don't have the glass that's used in front of modern paintings, which has a special coating so it doesn't reflect the light. In those days, you would have got big reflections in the paintings. And actually, this is one of the... Uh, clues we have in old photographs that the paintings have been glazed. There are some photographs of an installation in the 1880s where you can clearly see the reflections Mm. uh, in the paintings and we know therefore that they were glazed and there are records in the National Gallery uh, indicating that by the 1880s pretty much everything was glazed and it's only a 20th century preoccupation to remove the glass so you can see the painting better. And the second strategy was that they would put canvases on the back of the paintings. So another subsidiary canvas on the back. And this canvas was primed with the white pigment called lead white. And the reason for this is that lead white will react with some of the pollutant gases that were found in the atmosphere in London at the time preferentially in other words it will act like a sponge taking these polluting gases out of the atmosphere before they reach the back of the painting so it was quite a clever 
strategy. And this was partly the recommendation of Michael Faraday, who's of course a right. famous scientist right. of the mid-19th century, who was part of the group that advised the gallery on its scientific policy. And that that was the practice for decades? And- it was the practice certainly in the latter half of the 19th century. And it's not entirely clear uh, at what stage that started to fall out of fashion. Did it become the kind of model practice that was exported to the continent of Europe or to North America? It was certainly used in many other cities, particularly those that had bad pollution. And I think in North America, uh, a lot of the museums were built with rather better uh, filtration because they were built later. It was in the age where mechanical filtration, if not air conditioning, were part of the makeup of a building. And so we see as we move into the 20th century that these problems are dealt with at the front door rather than uh, within the building. Now, those are a set of problems that pertain to paintings because, of course, the National Gallery is a picture gallery. It's a yep. collection of paintings. Um, the British Museum is a very different kind of museum with different kinds of materials. Uh, and that's a problem that you've got different kinds of materials responding differently to the same environment. How early did one have to recognize that problem? Well, we know that the soiling of materials in the British Museum was a very early concern. Get, getting dirty. So this things is just the dirt coming in because as well as the pollutant gases, there's just dust which gets everywhere. And dust from burning is sometimes very sticky because it, it doesn't burning burn because completely. because it was in chimneys and the air well, was filled with this pollutant in the, in it's, the, it's, from the chimneys? It's largely from coal, of course, in the 19th century. Um, there's very little oil and petrol, of course, until we get into the 20th century. Uh, The coal can be quite poor quality. Poor quality coal has a lot of sulphur in it. When this burns, it produces a gas called sulphur dioxide. And this is a gas that can react with a lot of different materials. So Faraday, who did a lot of work on this for the National Gallery, also looked at the way that the sulphur dioxide formed from burning sulphur-containing coal uh, affected uh, metal objects um, and also the leather chairs in the Athenaeum Club, which is his yeah. London club, <laughs> um, again, during the middle of the 19th century. Um, but returning to the British Museum, the soiling of sculpture was a great concern, the fact that black material accreted to this. Um, also, the, the gas component w- was a great worry because it would attack leather, it would attack they thought paper, other organic materials that are susceptible to chemical change. And it led to big debates, uh, particularly in London, about whether or not one should introduce gaslighting in the building to museums. And okay. um, there was, of course, a worry about fire, but there were those who believed that the materials produced by the combustion of gas in the lights would be damaging. To objects, And actually, they weren't wrong, because some of these products can uh, attack museum objects, and they can create also some moisture. So you can get pockets of moisture in the museum, which, again, can cause changes that you wouldn't want to happen to the collections. So the collections are 
made of different materials. You've yeah. got paper collections, you've got sculpture collections that are made of stone, and some made of wood, some made of metal, for example. Uh, they're segregated also historically and culturally between, let's say, Asian and North American and African and whatever. Uh, sometimes that might put one sort of set of solutions in conflict with another set of solutions because you're not segregating them by materials, which might be the easiest, most efficient way to care for them differently, but you're mixing them all up and segregating them by cultures. W- when was that recognized to be a problem? Well, it was recognized as a problem very early that one might, you know, store materials that had very different needs in terms of their environment uh, together. The question when it was solved is quite another. And in fact, in many cases, it really hasn't been solved. Many museums throughout the world, the British Museum included, still store their objects according to their curatorial origins rather than their material properties. Uh, Now, this is being recognised increasingly by museums and for particularly sensitive collections, there are often moves to bring those together. So, for example, an ivory collections. Ivories can be affected by changes in the moisture content in the atmosphere around them, causing them to crack and distort. And so often a museum will create a store for its ivory, or if it has a group of particularly susceptible materials, um, say made of leather, it will perhaps bring those together. But it tends often to be an exception uh, rather than a rule in large museums that have uh, a long history and mixed collections. And where that long history is a history of cultural differences in, in the type of object rather than material differences. So, so we've learned a lot of, in, in just this brief conversation about the complexity of dealing with the material needs of different kinds of works of art by people called conservators. Uh, what is the history of the education of conservators? How did one become a conservator and how does that change over the course of time? Well, originally um, you, you became a conservator probably by practising the craft or tradition um, of the making of whatever it was you conserved or restored and you would work within a studio context and often the, the making of something and the restoration of it was very similar there was a very fine divide between the making of new and the restoration of old and then within museums there tended to be apprenticeships and a master, and they seem to be mostly men, there are a few exceptions, would pass on this tradition, this craft, uh, to pupils who would then in due course take on that work. And it was often the case that they weren't employed by the museum, but they had a close association with it. So there would be a particular family that provided several generations of conservator uh, to an institution. And It's only really in the 20th century that we start to see the emergence of a profession. There's quite a lot of talk about this in the 1920s in particular. And uh, a conference held in Rome in 1930 under the uh, auspices of um, what I guess would then have been the League of Nations, the predecessor to the UN and UNESCO, um, brought together... Um, a big international group to discuss the conservation of objects. And as a result of their discussions in 1930, they produced uh, a book on the conservation of, of, in this case, paintings, um, which was published in 1939 in French um, and then in 1940 in English. It's quite well known among 
certain groups. But the fact that it came out at this time when, you know, the whole of Europe was in turmoil um, means that it, it, it perhaps got a little lost. A big milestone for the profession is 1950, um, when the International Institute for Conservation is formed. And this is a group that had been in gestation uh, during the 1930s. Um, it had sort of been on ice uh, during the Second World War. And then gradually, as travel between Europe and America became easier again after the Second World War, they began to meet and to formulate the tenets of a conservation profession in 1950. So at that time, uh, it became an academic course of study that one undertook. What was that course of study? What did it comprise? Um, well, uh, people came into the profession usually from some other course of study. So perhaps from being an artist and you know, then working and learning to become a conservator, or perhaps from a scientific background, scientists uh, becoming interested in using their scientific knowledge to help in the conservation of objects. And in some ways, this is still the case with conservators today, that the fine arts, art history, archaeology, uh, and the sciences are the root for most people into conservation. In many countries, there are no bachelor's programs in conservation. You, you come into it from another discipline, particularly the case in the English-speaking world. Um, in other countries, you can go and take this as a first degree, but you tend only to become qualified after you've been studying for a rather longer period. And, and so by that point, then it introduces the question of the conservation scientist, because that's a separate profession from the conservator, and you're a conservation scientist. Yes. So uh, how does one become a conservation scientist, and how exactly does it distinguish itself from being a conservator? Well, there, there is a boundary, I suppose, between conservation and conservation science, but it's increasingly, I think, a rather porous boundary, and many of the conservation scientists of today have trained both in science and in conservation. So probably at some stage in their career, they had to make the decision whether they wanted to, to be a practicing conservator, uh, if you like, giving rather more bias to the, the more artistic elements, the more kind of creative elements of conservation, or whether they wanted to go down the route of applying their scientific knowledge to, uh, you know, kind of broader questions of, of how materials behave and how that impacts on the conservation of collections. Once you're in an institution and working as one or another, I suppose the thing that tends to distinguish the conservator and the conservation scientist is, is the conservator who has the hands-on contact with the object. The conservation scientist is perhaps acting more in the role of a kind of an advisor, uh, an, an ally in that process, helping to inform the decisions that are made. But increasingly, the conservation scientists are also answering questions that are posed not by the conservator, but by the curator, because of the material aspects of an object are not just of interest, of course, to the conservator, but they can help to inform the art historian, the archaeologist, the ethnographic historian, 
uh, about the materials, where they might have come from, how they might have arrived in that object, and how they may have changed through the history right, of the right. object. They help an art historian understand how something looks, why it looks the way it does look now, and whether the way it appears now is the result of some change over the course of time. But I think your point, which is always so interesting to an art historian like myself, is that when you break down the object into its component scientific parts, material parts, to try to understand where in the world they might have come from, what kind of questions of, of trade and, and influence can be asked of the object and, and what kind of evidence can be, can be produced to help one understand the development of, of works of art. Uh, so we have conservators, and we've got conservation scientists, and we have conservation departments. When do departments of conservation scientists come into play? Well, science departments arrive in museums before conservation science departments. They are probably conservation science departments, but they tend to be called laboratories. And the first to survive for any length of time is the Rathgens Lab in the Berlin Museums, which was founded at the very end of the 19th century and has a very long history. It's a laboratory that still exists today, over 120 years after its foundation. And then This is followed by the establishment of uh, laboratories in the early 20th century. So the British Museum Laboratory, for example, was founded in 1919, immediately after the First World War. And as a result of the deterioration of the collections in storage during that period, a laboratory was set up to look at the reasons behind that. And then we see a succession of laboratories being found. The the Fogg Laboratory in Harvard is founded in the 1920s. And then in the 1930s, huge numbers of laboratories start to be founded in museums around the world. And in many cases, the science laboratories predate the conservation departments because conservation was still carried out um, by private individuals sort of affiliated with the institution rather than an in-house department. So 100 years on, are we confident that all the significant collections, significant museums have in them sufficient number of conservators and conservation scientists, or is is it a problem? I'd say that in many cases we don't have enough conservation scientists. Now, I'm not saying that just because I want to increase the role of conservation science or I want to create jobs for conservation scientists, but there are significant collections that don't have uh, a scientist and they rely often on collaboration with universities or collaboration with institutions that have scientists. And of course, this is great because, you know, international collaboration in this field is very widespread. Uh, It's a very tight-knit community and a community in which it's possible to know many of the key colleagues across the world. Now, that could point to it being very collaborative. It could also point to the fact that it's still really quite small, that we can know each other. I think in a way that, for example, art historians simply could not, because there are so many more of them working in museums uh, across the world. But this collaboration means that, uh, you know, if there are significant issues in a collection, then the conservator or the curator uh, can turn to a, a wider community for answers. But it's great that in the last few years, partly through the intervention of organisations like uh, the Getty, the Mellon Foundation, uh, larger numbers of conservation scientists have been trained and have been placed uh, in museums across the world. And so it is a growing profession. It 
do with growing a little quicker? Well, well, conservation is a central part of what the Getty does, as you know. Not only conservation laboratories where we have collections, uh, but conservation science in the laboratories of the Conservation Institute. Uh, and then also the funding of training of conservators around the world by the foundation and the practice of that training by the Conservation Institute. And so, so it's a big part of what we do, a defining aspect of our mission, in fact. Um, is your work, as you're undertaking it now at the Getty in your research project, is it bringing you into contact with a range of different kinds of colleagues in the different parts of the Getty? And is it, is it been helpful to you to be here? Well, as you know, I'm here to write uh, something about museum lighting. So it's of interest to colleagues in the museum, uh, both on the curatorial side and also in the conservation uh, studios in the museum, because I'm not restricting myself to any one type of object in thinking about lighting. So I've had great contacts with people in objects conservation, in paintings conservation, paper conservation, and colleagues down at the villa. And Within that kind of collaborative atmosphere, uh, I see colleagues who have particular interests and particular specialisms in terms of materials. And sometimes those materials are not necessarily represented in the Getty collections. But as you know, I'm able to talk to colleagues about, you know, the cutting edge research they're doing with colleagues around the world on those types of, uh, of issues. Now, you've mentioned that your project is dealing with museum or gallery lighting. Uh, what prompted that as a subject of your research, and what are the problems associated with it? Well, you could say that my interest in museum lighting is sort of a long obsession. It's something I've been interested in since I first started my career at the National Gallery uh, more years ago than I care to remember. My first boss at the National Gallery was a man called Gary Thompson, and Gary Thompson wrote a book called The Museum Environment in 1978, which remains for many conservators and curators the sort of the guiding light uh, for no the museum. No pun intended. No, no pun intended. But for the museum environment in general, not just light, but pollution, humidity, temperature, all those things that we, we think about when we're hoping to control the environment around the collection in order to give it the longest life possible whilst still being able to enjoy it. And so I came into lighting partly through my training with Gary Thompson at the National Gallery and partly because I became very interested in the way in which paintings reacted to light and the, the individual pigments and dyes within paintings reacted to light. At the British Museum, I became interested in how a much wider variety of objects were affected by light. And I realised that although there are incredibly good resources out there in different areas, since Gary's book, there's nothing really that's brought it together um, as, a, as a single volume, which you could pick up and know about all aspects. So from the science of, of light, the science of damage by light, through to how the visual system works, so how we see objects, what are the things that affect us as we're moving through a museum or gallery, to putting this into practice, what are the kind of the day-to-day -day tips uh, for making sure that we make good use of the light while minimising damage. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting because you're quite right, you can't separate out light from the other aspects of the environment because there are consequences to the amount of light, the length of time they have lights are turned on and so forth, the kind of technology one uses to produce the light and all of that. Uh, but it's important to isolate it, at least for the sake of 
better understanding that aspect of the environment. There was a long time when people thought that natural light was better than artificial light. Early pictures were made under natural light conditions. They should be seen under natural light conditions and so forth. And the National Gallery in the Sainsbury Wing went to great lengths to exclude artificial lighting. There was a time, at least as I recall, when you walked into the galleries of the National Gallery and it seemed as if the lights had failed because you were only looking at pictures under natural light conditions. That, I think, has been modified and changed to some controversy when it, when it was changed. What is the prevailing sense about what is the balance between natural light and artificial light? Um, there's always been this conflict, I don't know, perhaps too strong a word for it, but this difference of opinion about whether one should uh, adopt natural light or artificial light. If you're trying to control the light levels from a conservation point of view, you'd really be best to start with a, a black box and light it yourself, because then you can control everything. But it has a very particular feel to it. It's a feel that some people like. Um, designers often like to work with a black box when they're creating an exhibition because it means they can make their stamp on it. But natural light has that quality of, of changeability. It changes both in its intensity and its colour as the day progresses. And it also has variable direction. So if we think about, you know, strong sunlight coming from one direction as opposed to a, a very blue sky creating an overall diffuse light, that can be very different. And I think we probably have some reaction to that deep within us. I'm not a philosopher, but it's noticeable that people react well to daylight and they react well to those properties of changeability. And I think the Sainsbury Wing at the National Gallery was an attempt to use daylight in a way that helped people to connect with its changeability by having a lot of daylight high up in the room, but actually not allowing an enormous amount of that daylight to come lower down into the rooms. So that meant that you could then use artificial light to, if you like, top up the level of daylight, in a way that ironed out some of the changes on the paintings, but allowed people to feel that connection with the changing daylight. And the way that was done in the Sainsbury Wing was that we used a set of lights that had blue filters in front of them to make those artificial lights blend rather better with daylight. And then as the daylight failed, we had a second set of lights that came on that were a bit warmer and created that sort of after-hours effect that you like when it's dark outside. And I think that was a very particular moment because that was in the late 80s and early 90s, and the Saint Marie opened in 1991. And it was really before we started to worry so much about the amount of energy we were using as museums. Now, I'm not saying no one thought about this, but sometime since then, it's become much more of an important factor. So I think now the moves to daylight are partly driven, not just because of its kind of emotional and viewing qualities, but because it's free energy, or at least appears to be. But of course, you then need some kind of system to modulate it and to, to limit it. But nevertheless, that's probably lower energy than putting artificial lights or electric lights in an institution. Is one of the uh, aspects of your study and research going to be that you're going to provide science 
to underline the decisions one has to make with regard to gallery lighting or gallery environments and others, that uh, right now the differences of opinions seem to be just that, a difference of opinion about things, what one likes or doesn't like, or what one prefers or doesn't prefer. Uh, are you hoping that they, you know, at the very least put a kind of bedrock of science beneath all of that? Um, I'm hoping that there will be a scientific basis for what I say. Um, it won't remove the need for, in the end, I think, a, a subjective decision. But it will, I, I think, allow you to to understand the basis on which you're making those decisions. So if I can sort of divide up the evidence that we have. We have certain evidence which we can put numbers to. We can look at just how much light you need to do a particular task. So we can say, if the light level is one foot candle, you can see this. If you take it down to 0.1 of a tenth of a foot candle, you can't see that any longer. So by taking many people and looking at what they can see under different light levels, we can come to some conclusion about just what the minimum light is for certain tasks. We can then say, does that improve if we use a different kind of light? And again, we can make some quantitative judgments about that. But then when we say, do you like this? We've moved out of the realm of science. We can ask a 1,000 people if they like it, and if 999 of them say yes, we can be confident, but we have asked them, if you like, an emotional question about this. We've asked them about like. We've not asked them about the task. You know, The task is, can you see this? Yes or no. Do you like this? Well, a bit. Quite a lot. I like that one more than that one. Comparative judgments are often quite good in this sense because you can say, well, I don't like that painting under that light, but I rather like it under that light. And the problem there is the next person you ask will potentially see it the other way around. Yeah. How has the technology of lighting changed and how has that affected the work that you're doing? Um, there have been some big changes in the last sort of 20, 30 years in terms of lighting. At the beginning of the 20th century, we had two choices. We either had natural light or we had something that you heated up so the old-fashioned incandescent lamp or its predecessors. And then fluorescent lamps came in in the middle of the 20th century, so that, that gave us an option. And then the development of the tungsten halogen lamps um, in the third quarter of the, the 20th century gave uh, another colour in the palette of lighting. Um, but the big change, of course, that everyone's aware of in their life outside the museum as well as within the museum is that we now have LEDs cropping up everywhere from car headlamps to, to lighting in our homes. And, of course, the great advantage of these in a very energy-conscious age is that they're spectacularly energy-efficient. When they first came in, it was the usual dilemma with a new light source. Well, they, they're great from the point of view of energy consumption, but they made everything look terrible. Because the colour wasn't right? Because the colour just wasn't, it wasn't very pleasing. It was very inhomogeneous. It often had a kind of a blue halo around a yellow spot or vice versa because of the technology of making the lamp. But the driving force to introduce good LEDs because of their economic benefits was so great that research just focused on making better LEDs to the extent that now 
um, you know, many of the questions that we asked of LEDs when they were first introduced are, are non-issues. Um, I don't think there's any particular reason now why we we shouldn't use LEDs. The main barrier, I think, still to using LEDs is that museums have to encounter a barrier of cost of reinstallation. So to take all the existing lamps out of a museum and replace them with LEDs is a very high capital cost. In the long term, those capital costs are paid off because the running costs are much lower. And most importantly, I think, the lamp life is very long. So you don't have to replace the lamp so often. That saves in lamp costs, but crucially, it means that you don't have to send a technician up on a cherry picker or up a set of steps so frequently to change the lamps. So you make much better use of your manpower. Yeah. Is uh, LED lighting changing rapidly? Is it uh, complicating your study? Because by the time you finish this, the technology will have been improved or at least changed over the course of the time that you're writing your study. Uh, Yes, LED technology is still moving incredibly rapidly. I think it's reached a level of maturity that one can write confidently about it, knowing it or its successors will be there. Um, I think if one were writing 10 years ago, one might have looked at LEDs and said, are they actually going to catch on? Will we overcome the problems? I think there's no question of that now. But as you've said, we need to look at what's next. The next technology on the horizon are so-called OLEDs, which are organic LEDs. And you may come across these already in large screen TVs. A lot of large screen TVs already use these OLEDs. They're not yet suitable for lighting in museums and galleries, but perhaps by the time this podcast goes out, they will be. It's a technology that is changing incredibly quickly. And uh, just one last question uh, on this. You're talking about advanced technology and that has some expense attached to it and access to such technology uh, has to be taken into account. Are you also thinking of of gallery solutions for parts of the world that that don't have access to such technologies? Um, Well, LEDs seem to have caught on worldwide. Um, Because they require less power to run them, they're quite useful in situations where in previous generations of lighting, uh, you couldn't uh, install a new lighting system because you just didn't have the generator capacity within an organisation. I mean, I worked some years ago uh, at a museum in India where you had to effectively turn the computers off um, if you wanted to turn on the air conditioning unit in the conservation studio. Now, the air conditioning unit in the conservation studio was probably not necessary because... As things came out of the studio, they went back into a climate uh, that was very changeable. But I think, you know, in organisations which are trying to keep up with what happens in more advanced institutions, LEDs are an advantage because they require less power. Of course, there is still that initial cost, which might make it a barrier, but the cost of LEDs is coming down all the time as they become kind of the dominant technology. Now, dare I ask, is your book almost finished? Um, parts of the book are in a very advanced stage, and parts of it I've deliberately waited until I came here 
to to work on because of the access to the libraries and the facilities here because it's, you know it's one of the few places where you can call up a book on vision science one day and a book on the deterioration of plastics the next day so i've particularly chosen to to focus on things here i suppose i'm about two thirds finished and my aim is to complete the book or at least the majority of the book during my fellowship here uh, and with the Rothschild Foundation. Well, if I can only encourage you to work quickly because we need the results of your work published and uh, we're thankful that you're here and thankful that you've given time for this podcast. Okay, very nice to talk to you. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud, or visit getty.edu slash podcasts for more resources. Thanks for listening. Listening.